Jim Irvin, and this is Here's One I Made Earlier, a regular conversation with songwriters around a key song in their repertoire. My guest today is Ian Archer. Born and raised in Bangor, Northern Ireland, he started his career as a solo artist in the mid-90s, before becoming involved with his homies Snow Patrol and their offshoot The Reindeer Section, during which time he helped write their subsequent breakthrough song, Run, a top five hit for the band in 2005, and a number one for Leona Lewis in 2008. Meanwhile, he cut three more solo albums before concentrating mostly on collaborative songwriting with other artists, enjoying great success with Jake Bug, co-writing and producing eight songs on his debut album, including the smash hit Lightning Bolt. And in 2016 came the song we're discussing in greater detail today, Hold Back the River, written, of course, with James Bay. It peaked at number two in the UK chart, sold over a million copies and won an Ivan Novello Award for that year's most performed song. Ian briefly joined Snow Patrol once again for their 2019 tour and simultaneously was the producer of Reworked, an album featuring spacious, reimagined versions of some of the band's best-loved songs. But like many songwriting pros, Ian is constantly working with emerging artists and recently co-wrote and produced Crash Test Kid, the debut album by American singer Sammy Brew. Hello, Ian. Welcome along. Hey, nice to be on board. Songwriters don't get interviewed much, do they? Is this a rare event for you? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, you don't really get the opportunity to talk about the, the backdrop to these songs too much. There's just some rare moments where you get to the, the witness people's reactions to the songs, like side of stage live. You, you get some kind of hit from that. But yeah, in terms of in, in terms of being interviewed or talking about the songs, it happens pretty, pretty rarely. The odd event here or there. But it's almost like as the songwriter in the room, your audience is the industry, you know, like they're the people that are aware of your input, but beyond that, but it doesn't make it any less enjoyable or any less attractive to me as a thing to do. You know, I still love it. Well, thanks for stepping out from behind the curtain. No, that's brilliant. You grew up in Bangor. What kind of music scene was there when you were growing up? Bangor was a brilliant time to grow up in for music, actually, at a certain point. Um, as we were coming to the tail end of secondary school, there was a real scene that emerged there in particular. There was a kind of local youth centre that was run by the local Presbyterian church. I think everything in Northern Ireland is run by the Presbyterian church. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, and the, but, but this was actually a remarkably great little kind of beachfront cafe that actually all of the, the massed people in town seemed to f- hang out at and they built a little stage in the corner and any band could play in there any night of the week. So there were a bunch of bands that, that sprung up around that place and it just galvanised the whole uh, little community of artists. Whenabouts was that happening? I'd say that was probably like 88, 89, that kind of time. And what had first connected with you musically, you know, even earlier than that? What made you want to start playing and, and doing stuff yourself? Uh, you know, music was around me from, from before I was born, essentially. My folks are very, very, very musical. Mom sang and, and played, led the choir. Um, my folks sang together a lot. 
a lot of this was also kind of church oriented my early days they would have dragged me and my brother along would have sang with them but then i kind of went completely as you do completely unhinged in my teenage years and I guess it was probably, you know, for all sorts of reasons in Northern Ireland and in my life, it was a fairly turbulent time. And I changed schools in the middle of a school year from the high school to the grammar school. There's a load of kind of transitional points that actually, when I look back, were probably really, really disruptive for me. And I just went nuts. And I really discovered music as as, as a way to sort of get through getting into a bit of a bit of bother because <laughs> I just I, my, my entire sort of social life fell apart and at, at about 13 14 I just completely delved into guitar playing you know picked up my dad's Telecaster plugged in an amp and and just never looked back a, an absolute obsession that I've lived with ever since for better or worse and what how were the troubles manifesting in Northern Ireland at that point were they in the background all the time or or had they kind of abated by that point i mean bangor itself I'd say i i moved out of bangor about 1990 to belfast school university and and became much more uh you know felt much closer what was happening bangor was always a fairly sheltered community that did that did completely annihilate the co-op with a car bomb on one particular saturday afternoon when i was about eight years old which you can remember but other than that, Bangor was fairly sheltered. But when I moved to Belfast, then, you know, there were just ongoing cases of, of people getting shot around the corner. And, and uh, you know, they blew up the hospital, which was half a mile away. And, and me and Johnny Quinn from Snow Patrol and Brian Houston, who's another Belfast songer, were playing outside Dr. Robert's record shop one Saturday afternoon. And we had a, I, I wrote a song when it kicks in about this, actually, well, that references this event. And, and someone ran out of the, out of the crowd on a Saturday afternoon and put a limpet man on top of a police car that just blew up right beside us effectively, you know, so there were really pretty close to home events that occurred, you know, quite a few. I could keep I keep going. <laughs> Not the subject of this podcast. There's another podcast in this. But that is incredible, isn't it, that you and everyone there had to go through that. Yeah, and that was, nor- that was just normality, like massive rifles and getting searched to go in the British home stores, you know. <laughs> so you, you mentioned uh, Johnny and your friends there. There's a quite a high proportion of people from that town in that period have become very successful songwriters. What do you think it was about yeah. that atmosphere that produced that? Yeah, it's really fascinating actually to see what everybody's done. Northern Ireland, you've got a deep affinity and a deep, deep love for it. And I love being there. And Jesus, there's plenty of times, you know, even now that I'd love to live there for many, many reasons. But I also think especially then we had a burning desire to get out as well. And I think the people who had a recognition that if if I stay here, it's just um, it's all consuming. And and that world is it's a difficult it's difficult province, especially at that time to break out. It was much, much easier now to get recognition there's quite a good tradition, isn't there, of, of Irish artists blossoming in exile? Yeah, uh, you know, from James Joyce and, and 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 everybody onwards. That that sense of, as you say, a deep connection, but you're always looking back at it in a way. And I think this is something in in just writing and being an artist in, in general, is that 
when you're making something and you have a sense of scope and a sense of potential f- for the work in terms of its reach, or I think that can really energize you in the act of making it. it like you, you know, you have you have a different energy when you feel like there's access to to an audience, or or there's the potential for access to an audience. All all of that has a big impact on on for me how I work and how positively I view what I'm doing, you know. I want there to be horizons, you know. When you first started learning to play, what did you want to do? What was the early ambition? I wanted to be a a seismic guitar god. (laughs) 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 Um, Anyone in particular you had your, your eye on their audience? I thought Eric Clapton was amazing. And still do. And um, who else was I listening to? I think quite quickly I got really into that uh, that Alchemy uh, Dire Straits live record. Just, yeah. just uh, sublime. As a guitarist, you know, Martin Offler just had this amazing thing. So I think as a little sort of 13, 14-year-old, stuff like that was, was really floating my boat. But I quite quickly uh, got into some serious american hair metal too like so. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of that started floating my boat as well what kind of bands were playing in in belfast at that time then who were the local acts that you were in competition with the sort of first really serious band that that i played in was a band called dorothy fields from a good mate johnny parks it, it was a big deal for us we got a residency opening up for ghost of an american airman they had a huge influence on us and actually do to this day in terms of my guitar playing and everything, you know, um, seeing that band of phenomenal energy. Then the, the, the bands that we were really looking up to at the time, Energy Orchard, I absolutely loved. And Bap Kennedy is just a sublimely brilliant songwriter. I mean, what a talent. He's just, to this day, I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful for him as a Belfast songwriter. He's just brilliant. Also, Hot House Flowers. I absolutely fell in love with that band too. I just thought they were sublimely brilliant as a as an Irish band. Yeah, tons of there's a really great vibrant period actually around that time. Great Irish music, you know. So you made some solo records for a Scottish label eventually. How did that happen? Final year of university, I went and played some festivals in the UK. And at one of those festivals, there was a label called Sticky Music who'd set up their own tent. They invited me to go to their tent and they immediately just said, we want to make a record. And I moved to Glasgow. They, they were based just outside of Glasgow in Ayrshire and just spent about four months out at their place. Made an album, no idea what I was doing, but they had a lot more experience than me. And some amazing things came from that record, really. You know, I've got to be so thankful for that. You know, I've got like... Our, the sort of lead single was Simon Mayo's single of the week on Radio 1 for two weeks running. He decided to play it a second week. And, and then I went on tour with John Martin and and Nils Lovgren and lo- loads of stuff. It was just kind of like blast off, you know. <laughs> Around about that time, you drifted into Snow Patrol, didn't you? What was your actual connection with them? So you were friends with them already, were you? Well... Around that time, I'm not sure Snow Patrol existed exactly then. Shrug became a thing in Dundee, which became Polar Bear. And then Johnny moved over to Dundee and started playing 
as Polar Bear with with Gary and Mark. I, I'd made two albums with Sticky. I then signed a publishing deal with Universal and started a new band in London. And unfortunately, that band did not survive. I sort of found myself fi- trying to figure out what what to do. At, it was at that point, and I'm trying to think when that was, 99 or something like that, 2000. At that point, the boys got in touch because they needed they needed someone to play a TV show the next day and said, do you want to play some guitar? And I just was like, yeah, I'm not doing anything. I'll jump in, no problem, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, fun. it was fun. We played this Irish TV show together and played another MTV2 show the next week in Dublin, and then I was in the band for a while, you know. So yeah, so how long were you actually a member of Snow Patrol? It was probably a year, I would say, where we were gigging loads and I was, you know, living in London but out on stretches on the road. We opened up for Ashes Free All Angels tour and, and did a bunch of stuff and then we you know, spent a lot of time rehearsing but write and writing in Glasgow. Tell me a bit about um run how did that come together it all happened while we were on the road back to glasgow out in the road back to glasgow we generally there was just no stop and there would just be it was full throttle in every sense of the word when you're on a tour like that and it's a long tour every sound check we'd get up and we'd try something new run really started to emerge from those pre-show jams remember it was like almost notebooking whoa that whatever we're doing there feels really really good (laughs) and then we'd try and eke out some time back in the rehearsal room in diving bell studios in glasgow where where we basically ensconce ourselves the rest of the time and then the whole thing kind of just emerging from playing together going away better work on it coming back play it again and i remember gary and i sitting in in diving bell it was it was um september the 11th whenever we finished the song whenever we put the final touches to the demo and and um and then started to get calls of like do you know what's happening out there which which is kind of um really etched in my mind in reference to the song too you know it was a while before that record got made and then that that got released so why did you leave at that point I'm probably not the ideal permanent band member. I think I've got too many strong ideas of my own for one thing. <laughs> so I maybe had a sense that I wanted I want to continue making my own records and doing and and I had a you know and still do have a career as an artist and that that still felt like it was central to what I did too. I was almost like an adopted member for a, for a year, and then uh, there was a little reset. The Nate, that, uh, you know, it's worked out phenomenally well for for everybody. I think in that sense, you know, because I still get the fix. <laughs> and then, so yeah, so you went on to to, to make uh, flood the tanks at that point, didn't you? So uh, was that straight away? Did you were you writing those songs all that time or yeah no I, I i mean this is a great thing like we at the time when we were demoing and writing ron and 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 uh summer o'clock is ticking and ways and means and all those songs all final straw we were almost simultaneously in those sessions we were 
demoing the boys were playing on songs fr from flood the tanks as well and we they were helping me to demo that up so we it was very much kind of like a, like a collective just the general enthusiasm for everybody's work and I love those kind of scenes and environments where there's there's this cross fertilization, just ideas everywhere, and people sharing ideas. Yeah. And then the boys came down and played on the record as well on that one. You always do on flood the tanks. You know, is is effectively Snow Patrol backing me up as well. So it it, it came to fruition on the record as well. How did it feel then you, when you were doing that, and then suddenly? Snow Patrol exploded. That must have been a strange sensation. I remember seeing them playing at Glastonbury on TV and doing Run, and it just felt like a moment, didn't it? It felt like, uh oh, this song's going to go somewhere. Yeah, it blew my mind. It was amazing. You know, Mary, my wife, and I had been living in London for quite a while, and we sort of decamped. I actually decamped the, the Eastbourne because I was working in a studio there a lot. I wanted a bit more space to finish Flood the Tanks. And we went down there. Mary had been working in labels and management companies, and and and, uh, and while I was there, I was trying to finish the record for about a year, and it was driving me absolutely mad. So I, and and my advance was swiftly running out. I remember I was working in in a hostel, a homeless hostel, in in Eastbourne, and then that just started to blow up. And I loved doing I loved doing that work, but suddenly it felt like a switch went on and I, it was just like, we've got to go back to London. This is kicking off. <laughs> this is amazing. You know? Okay. Um, so, so for me, it was just nothing but exhilaration and like excitement for the boys. Just an amazing thing to have been a part of it. You know, was that a stimulus to deciding you wanted to do more collaborative songwriting was you were you being offered things as a result of run or how did that transition come about yeah but you know what i, I honestly have to say that actually the, the success of the song and the subsequent diver novello award for the record and everything all of that brought me opportunities to do that but you know i think i think working with gary actually so closely was the thing that did it because they got me into collaboration because I had never worked with someone that team and oriented and not interested in bringing people together and what can happen when you draw draw from you know a group of people like that that it really inspired me and I'd probably spent too long working with my hand over my book, you know, and like, and, and uh, trying try to make my, my own, keep con somehow retain control of lots of things, which I think is a very, there's lots of Irish artists that come over to work and, and, and exactly like me, it's a real, tr it's a real trade. I think it's like, it's a fear of kind of losing control of what you're doing. It's understandable. <laughs> <laughs> it's very deep in the Irish history and psyche, um, and uh, and and so I'd probably been working in that mode for too long, and and you get you end up working really closely with somebody who, who, you know, has has an innate ability to bring out great things from other people, and and makes a record that blows the doors off. I was like, whoa, late late on the uptake, but I kind of realised that actually no 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 when you put 
really good people together, really great, great things can happen from that, you know? So I got excited about that idea. I was just like, oh, geez, if I can team up with other artists and work in this way, potentially brilliant things can come from it, two heads and all that. And you're both going somewhere you don't expect, aren't you? So that's... Yeah, completely. And, you know, you, you can push ideas further. If you've got, if you, and you know that thing where you're writing with someone who, who's pushing, it's like, it's beautiful. There's nothing cooler than writing with someone who's really moving something down a track even further than you might have imagined. And, and you can riff off that. It's brilliant. Conversely, it's not so good when it's the other way around, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's definitely plenty of situations where, where um yeah it can be quite static and uh and lacking in flow and you know you're really uh up against it i like it's interesting because i think some of the most tense and weird and stunted and stilted environments can still actually breed some pretty cool things you know like it's 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 an odd thing the collaborative process yeah we've spoken a bit about this haven't we the the sensation of people that are dismantling the high while you're in the room (laughs) 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 that are winding back on an idea and you think you've got somewhere and then they take it down and that's really awful isn't it but but as you say sometimes the conflict can produce little sparks that you're that neither of you are expecting if you don't in those environments have the have the mentality of great ideas are profligate you don't like that one let's have another one inside your mind it's like letting go of a beautiful fish that you've just caught for dinner you know it's like it's like all right all right let's let it go and but you're like no no there's way there's way more and and as long as and i think so much the psychology of it of just going no, I'm excited about the next idea. Let's get something that you love and I love and that's right. And But there are times where that becomes more and more challenging to to uh, retain that, that kind of mindset. But We've spoken before and you've told me that you're not a big fan, having said you enjoy the collaboration thing, you're not a big fan of working with more than one person in the room, though, are you? As a writer with artists, it's, you just like it being you and the artist. Is there a particular reason for that? I, th- I think I'm trying to get to a certain level of intimacy and intimacy of that type is much more challenging with three people. Um, that, that conversations can occur that inspire the song that wouldn't occur in an environment where there are multiple people there, just the nature of one-on-ones. Having a certain amount of grenades thrown in, but not that many, <laughs> is kind of cool too. Being able to get in a flow. It's a bit um, of collaboration and a bit of control at the same time is what you, is, is your ideal recipe. Yeah, maybe maybe it's my old uh, control freakery <laughs> remaining in the mix to some extent. You know, really, when I write stuff, I don't I don't even delve with production most of the time. Uh, I am just writing on an instrument with someone notebooking on one microphone what we're doing taking little performance little bursts of energy of melodies and performances and uh, on one mic and absolutely pinning the song to the to the floor and getting it like really trying to write something bulletproof on one instrument and then generally when 
when an artist leaves, I'll start on a process of adding and developing the arrangement and we'll bat it back and forward a bit and get the production side where it should be. But I rarely, like fairly rarely do I add stuff while someone's there. Are there things you concentrate on particularly while you're writing? Are there things you always try and nail down, get into place? It's, it, it's really, you're looking for a, an essential piece of DNA, a little bit of gold dust to just start. It's like um, crystals, isn't it? You know, like you get like a little bit of crystal that you can then just start to grow. Sometimes that comes from a chunk of lyric and sometimes it comes from some little corner of melody or a chord shift or something. But but once you start mutually with someone else to kind of go, that's really special, then that consensus and that cohesion where, where okay, we can work together now because we're agreed that there's something great about that. From there, then you catch the tail of something, hopefully, and you can keep that that rolling you know but that's that is that is that just a really abstract answer to that question <laughs> <laughs> um you've you've had quite a few hits in your time do you know when you've written a hit song no no definitely not i think whenever we were were completing lightning bolt for me personally like it just felt like we it was cut out of rock you know i, I and and that's i really enjoy those moments where i'm like oh, i'm really pleased with that <laughs> certainly because of the style of that of, of, of Jake's music and the nature of it I, you know I, it was hard to tell quite how much um, commercial appeal it was going to have but it really satisfied me Hold Back the River was released in November 2014 as the second single from James Bay's debut album Chaos and the Calm which also contained further collaborations with Ian, opening track Craving and the subsequent single Best Fake Smile. The song was produced by Jakir King and went on to peak at number two in the UK, selling almost two million copies. It was number one in Ireland and hit around the world, everywhere from Belgium to Colombia, Slovenia to New Zealand. In the United States, though it did very well on alternative and rock radio, it only managed to bubble under the Billboard Top 100. Nevertheless, it was nominated for a Grammy for Best Rock Song of 2015 and won an Ivan Novello Award in Britain for the most played song of the year. So um, how did you actually meet James? What was the, the first meeting? It showed up to write one day, put, put a session in. James came to my studio, at, which is in the bell tower of a church in North London. We, yeah, we met up and just got good, just had great chats and tore right in. We did two days. First day we wrote a song, remember what it's called who am i kidding or something and and pretty much completed it in the first day and then wrote craving the second day so that first song was really a way of us almost road testing working together and seeing where we uh coalesced and and where we might have differences of opinion and it just sort of starts to you start to get the dynamics of the relationship and writing together. So sometimes writing something like that in a very free way of like, well, this might stick or it might be our vehicle to just get off the blocks. That can be quite a good thing, you know, but he came back in. So obviously something was going right. He, James was feeling good about the relationship and enjoyed writing that song. I mean, we spent the day talking thrashing out 
different ideas, trying lots of things, getting a little, getting a little despondent, getting a little frustrated. Uh, nothing was really sticking. Things were really starting to ramp up for James in his career, and I think he was feeling that. And I think alongside the sort of elation of that, there was also a little an almost sense of panic and concern of like, wow, my life is potentially about to really change. It, you know, he was saying, I played a show the other night and I invited a load of family and friends down and literally I was kind of swamped with industry people and fans and different things. I've been overcome with attention um, for what I'm for what I'm doing. And as brilliant as that sounds, it that, that can be quite alarming and quite concerning. So we're sort of talking about about that and about his family and about his mates and about those relationships and and how they might withstand all that very naturally you know but all the time obviously you're kind of I'm, I'm I've got a notebook like I unashamedly just sit with a notebook and write stuff down as people talk and like you know uh, just ignore the fact that I'm writing everything you say down but it's a brilliant thing because if I write it all down throughout the process, once we get Cat's Tail of a song, the artist then really starts to appreciate the fact that I've noted it all down because I can go, oh, hang on a second, you said this, da 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 And it always sparks a new idea or a new thought or a new thing when we get a little dry later on. But the first day we really didn't get anywhere at all in terms of writing it. And it was, it was day two when when James played the legendary guitar riff, <laughs> basically. Like, he came into every session with that Epiphone Century, which has become his signature guitar. You know, Epiphone now make it James Bay signature Epiphone Century. And so he, he came in, took the Century out of the case and played the riff, you know, dun, 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 dun. Like I really, I kind of was messing around with this, and I really like it. And I heard, oh, that's that's great. Why don't you just sing that? <laughs> sing, you know, sing that back. I tried singing. I said, well, that sounds great. And James is going, well, well, yeah, it sounds good, but it sounds a bit like this, and it sounds a bit like that. Immediately starting to strip away something that has something fantastic about it and immediacy and like boom there it is no no just just roll with me for a minute just sing that because it feels great and so we got past that initial hurdle and had something felt very strong which potentially you could take up something that's written around a pentatonic scale in that sense and sort of imagine it as a chorus really you know something that the the British Eurovision <laughs> entrance a couple of years ago proved because they wrote a chorus with exactly that melody. But um, <laughs> really it was like, line one, let's go. This feels like the start of a song. And if we use this as our building block for the verse and we can go one better for a chorus, that, that feels to me like you're, you're, you're setting yourself a really uh, high bar. Now, it's got... There's a sort of gospel element to it, isn't there? How how did that emerge? That is, it's written in a church. We're in this room, very high ceiling, stained glass windows, harmonium in the corner, like organ. It's an amazing room to sing in. 
all the alcoves and everything really right. It's not a huge room, but it's got a very high ceiling. And James loves writing in that room for that reason, because when he opens up his lungs and he's got a really loud voice, the room gives an awful lot back. Just because of how James likes to write or liked to write at that point, he would just play and sing in a way like he was performing to 10,000 people. So he would be stood up with his guitar around his neck and singing at the top of his lungs, which for anybody who doesn't sit in writing sessions isn't necessarily the, 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 the normal way that things happen. This is totally different because James is standing in the middle of the room with his legs apart, the guitar howling at the ceiling, you know, completely in the moment. So that's quite inspiring in itself. And then it's just like sitting there with a mic open the whole time. All these burbling, nonsensical emissions of kind of James's marvelous voice, you know, kind of rattling around the room. And then it's just keeping the energy high, keeping the positivity up and letting that happen to a point where... He, he'll hit something, and I imagine, because at that point we had the verse, and obviously then you're looking for the kind of chorus moment, and he'll have hit that full-on root chord and the note, and we'll have developed the chorus. The kind of gospel bit, I guess, is the lonely water bit. Lonely water. Which is a moment that I suggested we add. I'd previously written a song called Everest, which is on my record to the Pine Roots. It has this uh, like refrain at the end of it, which is kind of, sort of like a gospel refrain as well, which all of my family um, sing on. And it was certainly something, a sort of form that I was playing with. And I, and I knew in this context, it could really pull through the emotion and, and take the song w one further, you know, to 11. So you had all the notes from the day before uh, about his starting to feel a bit swamped by the, the emergence of fame. How did that turn into the title of the, of the song? Well, let's see. Eventually we'll have gotten the verse and the chorus mapped out melodically. We knew where we were going. And at that point... I'm either searching for the cornerstone lyric of the whole thing, which in this sense would have been hold back the river. If that is not, if that's not arriving as promptly as I might hope it will, then my tail, when my tail between my legs go to line one, I got the sense that I really wanted active language from the outset. And so there's a lot of effort, like sense of effort, the sense of trying to keep you close to me, but life going in between. The, the melody seemed to ask for that to me. Maybe it's the rise and fall of it that, that felt like. There's pressure in the melody in a way, isn't there? That, yeah, that's probably, a, that's a really good way of putting it, Jim, yeah. The, the first verse, formed itself pretty quickly with then have, having that and we still had this chorus melody and it's like what does this need there was a there was a lot of work done thrashing out that that chorus in, in a couple of different ways because 
there were a few things that really needed to, 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 to get right to really make it stick so that we could get to the next level of writing the lyric because the chords were moving twice as fast initially. So it was like, like it was changing. Changing there. It felt really, when you're moving that fast, it's, it's, the chords are changing every two beats in the bar. And, and it's kind of like felt really uh, sort of pedestrian. Like it's sort of, we know this, like this is too familiar. It's too, it's too right. And, and it was that thing of, of I guess, my uh, indie rock band sensibilities of like, how do we make this dumber? Like, how do we make this have more punk energy and a bit more just locked on to the melody and get away from cute chord progressions? And so it was like, just stay on that. Don't move. Don't change the chord. Like, just hold it and minimalize it. And suddenly the thing just felt like, whoa, it's just drive the melody and James's voice was doing all the work. You could focus on that. And we didn't have the lyric, but the hold back the river, let me look in your eye, hold back the river. So I, that's all on one chord. It just sits there. <laughs> and um, the lyric for the chorus then sprung out of a notebook that I have, that I, that I still have, that just has hold back the river written in it somewhere and I just opened the notebook kind of because we were searching and searching and trying words and trying things and trying different avenues I, I love my old notebooks for this reason they're just when I'm stuck and I don't I don't know what that nugget of language is going to be there's so much just randomly strewn through these notebooks of ideas that just haven't been used and quite often I'll open it up and I'll find something that a fits a meter and the B actually just bursts the sentiment of the song wide open too, you know, and that that metaphor just seemed to do that for me. So I was like, James, how about pull back river? <laughs> you know, and he's like, oh, well, really? Oh, okay. Well, yeah, let me try saying it. You know, it's like, that feels, you don't know. You're just going, that feels kind of pretty cool. It's, yeah, I mean, that works. Exactly. The minute I saw it, I was like, that's, well, that's it, isn't it? You're saying, you're you're frightened about the pace of life and the way that this is going to um, impact you in terms of contact with your family and, and almost sweep you away from uh, the people you care about and there it is that's it you know I love writing for those moments of serendipity you know where something just sort of leaps off the page like oh that feels good and um, it always feels like a risk when you first throw those things out because a lot of the time they're not good ideas. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're just kind of random, like, what about this? Did this feel immediately like, oh, hang on, this is a cut above the other stuff we've done? I don't know. Um, not really. What I'm looking for is, are we writing a song that feels like it wants to exist? Like, it feels like it deserves to exist in the world. Like, that's the only criteria that I can have to finish something. I kind of certainly not going right. This feels like this is a hit, you know. Even though we know the principles that exist around hit records, and we can write a bit with those principles in mind. Really, I just want to. All of that's going on in the background, but I'm thinking, does does this deserve to exist? <laughs> because I don't want to write something that doesn't add or doesn't bring anything, and 
and Nordis James, I imagine either. You know, so that that's my main criteria. So I so I, that that's that's the only way I could judge it. That night, I got back and I take things home and work them up at home and mix things. You know, I, the the guitar and vocal got a great vocal comp together and um, and and then started to add all the all the parts that that would inform the arrangement of songs it stands now as people know it and once i had all that together and the back vocals and kind of just sculpted it out then i think very swiftly maybe that following morning i'd check over it and have a listen and i sent it to paul and ryan james's manager and i mean the response back was just immediate it was like this is amazing or something you know and you don't get those emails very often it's rare that that people just pen it to the wall like that but certainly the response to that song was just like this is this is brilliant and so so that was that was positive but i did not i did not know or expect that um because i've had too many situations to still do where i'm going this is it this is amazing and then there's just this sort of flat response to things so you can't you can't really predict how other people are going to respond to to music i didn't realize until i looked into this to talk to you that the second line is hold back the river so i yeah and stop from it i always assumed it was hold back the river so wide Ah, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't, I mean, maybe I'm alone in that, but it obviously that was part of the metaphor for me. Hold, <laughs> hold back the river so yeah. wide. <laughs> and, went, oh. yeah, yeah. and then I looked and went, oh, it's not that at all. Um, yeah. And that's an interesting part, isn't it, about the way that songs arrive in the world is how they're translated or interpreted by the, the listener. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and and that works and I love that, actually, you know, that people hear it in a different way to how you write it. And lots of people have said, oh, well, I thought it was about crying. And, you know, I thought it was about tears and looking in someone's eyes and, and they're crying and you're saying, hold back the river and don't cry and whatever. And it's like, no, it's not about that at all. But that's fantastic that it's about that for you. You know, a great moment to sort of stand inside a stage and looking out and seeing everybody sing the song you know it, it is one of those songs and it's a bit like run in that sense it's very similar when you look out at a crowd or you sit in the middle of a crowd and everybody's singing it and everybody means it for different reasons <laughs> like i love that uh that, that that people have just found themselves in it in different ways you know actually the tears metaphor works all the way through it doesn't it because you've got the lonely water bit as well it all ties in so yeah yeah and the lonely water bit was just something that came out of just fumbling and mumbling and 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 uh making making sounds and but lonely water was what was being sung i was like lonely water i mean we can't really do that what would we do with that and james was like no lonely water that's great do that you know and and the so and that's the bit where I guess the songwriter in you in a, in, in a way is going well well what sense does that make does that make any sense? Yeah. <laughs> and James James is going who cares? <laughs> like you know just do that because it's because it's beautiful and it feels right and it sounds right and he you know I love I love that process of working with someone else when their instincts kick in and push you away from 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 really trying to sort of 
draw all the lines in bold, you know. And now we're both big Van Morrison fans and Lonely Water, that's kind of like a Van Morrison phrase almost, isn't it? It's one of those things that would have just sort of stream of consciousness popped out of his head and you go, what does that mean? But it doesn't matter. It sounds great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let it, let that sit and let it be. And, and yeah, and in a similar way, you know, when you have the absolute commitment of Van Morrison singing, you know, listen to the lion or, what, you know, yeah. like... like you've i mean most of his lyrics are just not non sequiturs aren't they <laughs> totally, totally. It, yeah but his delivery of it all inspires absolute trust and you you know what i mean you just have faith in it all because it's van now i mean why is ford and fitzroy madam george so emotional to someone oh. that well for me for someone that didn't grow up in 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 belfast but i mean for you that must have another level of of but just the way he sings those <laughs> the, yeah two street names and the name of a fictional character wow mm -hmm. it's incredibly moving that, that it's a, it's a, a strange ability that isn't it to to pull out something that isn't in what you're saying there's just not a shadow of a doubt in it you know it sort of feels like it's always been when I went back to listen to it, I realised that Hold Back the River is a much uh, smaller song sonically than I remembered it. It's one of those where you, you think it's big all the way through, don't you? And actually, when you listen to it, it takes a long time to get going, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think, actually, my recording may feel bigger, you know. And that's a great thing that Jakir brought to it, actually, as well, is that it really packs a punch, and yet it really doesn't try too hard you know like like and um it has a contained feeling about it which i love we mentioned the the gospel aspect to it it, it got to number one in ireland do you think there's something inherently irish about it as a song well maybe there is i hadn't even thought of that but certainly you know it's a celtic melody uh the yeah. the, the verse melody is is a pentaton major pentatonic scale really oscillating up and coming down and that is quintessentially irish you know um but yeah and, and scots actually i would say there's a lot of scots in it because i was listening the other day to um bonnie banks of loch lomond and realizing oh it's got a real affinity with that actually you know and and that is a like that's just a spectacular song is this kind of up there alongside Danny Boy is just a just a spectacular piece of songwriting, you know. There have been points having, after the fact of having having written that song that I've kind of gone back and gone, oh yeah, there's real, there's a sort of Celtic context to to the song for sure. Uh, you, we mentioned the Ivor and the Grammy nomination. What, what did it lead to for you personally? Did it was there suddenly a, a, an enormous amount of attention from it? I mean, it's just amazing to to stand in front of the industry at the Ivers, you know, and accept an award and and um I feel like that's been that's been a brilliant result of the song doing what it does. But it people think of the song as a ballad and if you couple it with you know when when the when the songs that you're known for are sort of stacked together, if you couple it with run, people will think of it in a kinda similar space and so it sort of tends to typecast me as well you know 
So I'm aware of that. that that's one thing that is incredibly positive because it limits what people think you do. In between run and and hold back the river, there's you know there was Jake's first and second record, which you know really pack a punch and have a, um, a you know have, have a lot more attitude to them. And there's a lot of joy and a lot of you know they're cheeky those tunes. <laughs> and yeah. I really um, I like the joy, I like the energy, I like the spark, a little bit of punk rock about those things. Th- there are other things I do that get a little overshadowed, I guess, but that, you can't complain about that. It's all good, you know. What would you like to do in, in the future? What are the kinds of things that you feel you haven't been able to, to do and, and would like to pursue uh, song-wise? I'm really interested in the, at, at the moment in working in really more adventurous choral territory that modern songwriting really doesn't uh, have much tolerance for. And yet, the further back in time you go, the more wonderfully complex melodies and, and choral backdrops are. And I think it's a real, I think it's such a, such, it's such a sad thing that that's such a dying art. So, so at the moment, that's what I'm really trying to nurture is shifting chord scapes that move behind behind the melody in really uh, interesting ways, and, um, and and maybe even modulation, <laughs> which is very daring these days. Uh, yes, and I think that's there's something to be said for swimming against the tide, isn't there? It's it's a it's a it's a useful place to be while everyone's singing over loops and barely writing any melodies yeah i just i i have to go places that excite me you know or just i want to i want to explore and um learn and learn you know and and so i may as well do that while i'm trying to make a record (laughs) (laughs) excellent well ian thank you so much for talking to me and good luck with that uh i'm sure if anyone can pull it off you can yes Great to talk to you. Thanks. and uh, I appreciate it. It's good to see you down the clubs, as George said. Absolutely. See you down our pods in. Yeah. See you in the charts. Um, thanks, Ian. Bye. You can find a playlist of Ian Archer's work for himself and other artists by searching for Here's One I Made Earlier, Ian Archer at Spotify. And he spells his name I-A-I-N, by the way. Please subscribe and comment wherever you get your podcasts and join me again next time for another writer discussing a key work in their repertoire. Until then, stay well. Bye-bye.